If you'll join with me in turning to Galatians chapter 2, our text this Lord's Day will be Galatians 2 verses 17 through 21. And as you turn there, I wanted to let you know that today, as Pastor Matt mentioned, we will be responding to the Word uh, through coming to the Lord's table together. Uh, If you're new to Bloomfield Baptist Church or just visiting with us today, uh, the Lord's table is for all confessing followers of Jesus Christ. And so if you have made that profession of faith, you've trusted in Christ as your Lord, then we invite you to come to this table with us because it is a table for brothers and sisters in Christ. If you've yet to make that profession, then we would invite you to observe uh, as those of us who have trusted in Jesus share in this meal together. And hopefully that will be a witness along with the word that we read today and study today uh, to the grace of God and to the gospel of God And we invite you to respond to that message through repentance and faith. And so uh, the Lord's table will be our time of response to the word today. Uh, We find ourselves today in Galatians chapter 2 where uh, there is discussion uh, about a table and about a meal. Uh, Paul is sharing with the Galatians about an issue that took place in the church in Antioch uh, with Peter and Barnabas and others. And and in summary, as we've looked at that, uh, essentially you had... Christians, people coming to faith in Christ, some who were from a Jewish background, some who were from a non-Jewish, a Gentile background. And for some from the Jewish background, there was some confusion. Because they were taking the Old Testament law, the Old Testament cup, the Old Covenant, and they were trying to apply it on top of the gospel. In essence, they were adding works to faith, and that took away from the gospel. And so, for example, as you look into the Old Testament, you'll see some Levitical eating codes there about food that's clean and unclean. Of course, the Gentiles paid no attention to this, so they would just eat as they pleased. And so then, uh, under the gospel, uh, Jesus essentially tells believers from a Jewish background, you can eat as you please. But there were those who thought they were more righteous and more holy as Christians if they stuck to those Old Testament eating codes. And so Peter had been eating with these Gentile believers, eating whatever they were eating. But then when some of these Jewish believers are coming, he becomes a hypocrite because he stops eating with them. He doesn't want to be perceived as unholy. And so Paul opposes him, he confronts him, and then and recounting that confrontation, he's now explaining to the Galatians why that is an issue and ultimately what it is that saves a person. Justification By faith in Christ alone. That is what saves us. That is what makes us right with God. And so we're picking up today in this discussion. In verse 17, Paul has begun to explain this to the Galatians and telling them what justification is. And now we'll see in these verses today, he's telling them what justification does. And so we're going to look at verses 17 through 21. And if you're able to, out of reverence for God's word, if you'd stand... As I read this text for us. And again, we always need this helpful reminder that this is the Word of God. That this is God's Word breathed through His Holy Spirit. As Paul wrote to the Galatians, it is God's Word to us at Bloomfield Baptist Church today. And this is what the Word of the Lord says to us. Beginning there in verse 17. But if we... In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you would, pray with me, church. Father God, we have heard your word enough to know that Christ died for a great purpose. He died that we may be right with you. He died for our sin in our place. God, if that truth has not resonated with every heart here, I pray that it would. 
I pray that you might help us to understand today, if we don't understand yet, what it means to be made right before you through the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Lord, would you help us today to die to sin and be made alive to Jesus Christ? Would you do a work that only you can do? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we began our study with the question, what is justification? I mean, that's kind of a a theological term, this description of doctrine that we throw out there, so it's important that we explain what it means. And so just in summary of what we looked at last week, uh, justification is a legal term that refers to a person standing before the bar of God's justice. Justification means to be declared right with God. And so for me to be in the presence of God, for you to be in the presence of God, we need to be righteous. Now what's the problem with that? Well, we are sinners. And so left to ourselves, we can't be in God's presence because we sin and we fall short. That's what the scripture says to us. All have sinned and all fall short of God's glory. So how can sinful man be in the presence of a holy God? Well, sinful man must be declared righteous, must be justified. This happens through faith in Christ alone. It is this question, it is this issue that compels us to understand the gospel. It is through the gospel, it is through justification by faith in Christ alone that you and I might stand one day before a holy God. Pastor John MacArthur said it this way, justification is the free and gracious act of, by which God declares a sinner right with himself, forgiving, pardoning, restoring, and accepting him on the basis of nothing but trust in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. John Calvin said justification by faith is the hinge on which all true religion turns. And so last Lord's Day, as we looked at justification, we looked at the issues that justification by faith is not about who you are or what you've done. It is entirely about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And it compels us to ask the question, are we trusting in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for our salvation? And if we are, then how does that work? What is the result of it? What what does justification then do in our lives? Well, that's what we're going to look at today in preparation for the Lord's table together. Beginning with point one there in your outline. We we move now and seeing what justification does. Point one, justification by faith frees us from the condemnation of legalism. Now, if you have grown up in a Baptist church in the South, you have experienced legalism. (laughs) You have probably participated in legalism. Uh, We can describe legalism many ways, but in in the context here, essentially, what legalism is, is elevating the law over the gospel. It's trusting in works rather than trusting in grace. It's seeing what we do and don't do as a means to make us righteous rather than trusting in the grace of God and the grace of God alone to be declared righteous. What legalism often focuses on is an external conformity. It is a set of do's and don'ts. Legalism often tries to change a person from the outside in. But when there's no true heart change, what doesn't work? And that's exactly what I think Paul has encountered here and what he's describing to the Galatians. Again, the context there in Galatia is after Paul had shared the gospel and a church had been built there, that these Judaizers, that these Jewish believers, some of whom were teaching the people that in order to be truly, fully Christians, they had to follow all these Old Testament commands that they had crept in. They were teaching a false gospel. They were false teachers. They were legalistic. And so when the situation comes up in the church in Antioch, Paul is describing how legalism affected it. Peter was freely eating with these Gentile believers through the grace of God. God had done this great work. If you remember Peter's testimony and what God did there in his life, where he gets that revelation from the Lord that that it's okay to go and, and eat with these Gentiles and eat the food they've eaten. 
I mean, for all his life, he's been taught, don't eat these things. These things make you unholy. And now he can eat them, and he's experiencing God's grace. But then these folks creep in who are holding on to the law, holding on to the Old Covenant, elevating it above the Gospel. And Peter starts to feel this, this pressure, this legalism. Well, if I eat with these people, they're going to see me as unholy, so I need to externally conform to their expectations in order to be a good Christian. But what does Jesus say about these things? Jesus made it real clear that it's not what we put in our mouth that makes us unholy. It's what comes out of our mouth. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says, it's not what goes in the mouth that defiles a person, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Jesus said this in the context of the Pharisees accusing Jesus and his followers of being unholy. See, in Jesus' day, for you to be a, a righteous Pharisee, for you to be one who really held on to the Old Testament law, one who declared your righteousness before others, you had to wash your hands before a meal. Now hear me, kids. Wash your hands before a meal. That, that, that's a good thing. I hope you wash your hands before you grab one of these crackers. Everybody's grabbing it after you for the Lord's Supper. That, that's a germ thing. But in Jesus' day, that, they don't understand germs. In Jesus' day, this wasn't about having good personal hygiene. In Jesus' day, this was a declaration a Pharisee would make in saying, look at me, I'm clean before the Lord. That they would wash their hands and hold them high to heaven to say, I'm righteous before the Lord. And then they see Jesus and his disciples aren't doing this. Well, look at them, they're unholy. Jesus says, listen, it's not what you put in your mouth that defiles you. And then the disciples respond this way in Matthew 15. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this thing? <laughs> but why were they offended? Because he's talking about them. And he's saying, You are the sinner. I've heard what comes out of your mouth. Remember we looked, I believe just last Lord's Day or the one before that, at how you've got that, that, that picture Jesus gives of the Pharisee praying beside the, the sinful tax collector, and the tax collector's just repentant and broken before God. And what's that Pharisee doing? Look at me. Look at how good I am. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like them. Jesus says that, that's the sin. That, that's what defiles you. That's what shows your heart. You are legalistic. And so Paul here is responding to the legalism of the Judaizers. Notice what he says here in verse 17. He says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Now, what in the world is Paul saying here? Well, what I believe Paul's doing here is he's making an argument to point out how illogical the Judaizers' argument is. And so in other words, what he's doing is saying, Okay, let's assume for a moment that the Judaizers are correct. Now, he's going to say in a moment they're not, but let's just assume they're correct. Let's assume they're correct in saying that if we as Jewish Christians eat with Gentile Christians, that we are defiling ourselves based on what goes into our mouths. Let's assume they're right on that for a second. Paul says then, if that is the case, then according to the Judaizers, he and Barnabas and Peter and these other Jewish Christians, they were sinning, that they were unclean. They were making themselves unholy. And if that is the case, Paul begins to, continues to argue the point here. He says, if that's the case, guess who taught us to be this way? It was Jesus. Jesus is the one who said, it's not what goes in your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out. Jesus is the one, Paul later writes, who broke down this wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles and made them one in Christ. And so what Paul's saying is, okay, if they are correct, which they're not, but if they are, then yes, we're indeed sinners by eating with the Gentiles, but Jesus, he says here, is a servant of sin. That word servant can be translated as mass, or excuse me, minister. Jesus is a preacher of sin, if they're correct. But notice, he says they're not, verse 17 at the end there, he says, certainly not. <laughs> New American Standard translates it, may it never be. Others translate it, absolutely not. Paul here is saying emphatically, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> Jesus is not a minister of sin. Jesus is the one who died for sin. 
Jesus is the one that died in our place that we would no longer be slaves to sin. He's pointing out how illogical this legalistic argument is. And then he goes on, verse 18, to say this. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Well, again, what's Paul saying? Well, Paul knew what it was to live under legalism. Paul described himself as the, the, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he, he held on to the law. He, he knew what it was to be legalistic. And so in order for Paul to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, he had to die to the law. He had to leave that legalism behind. He had to understand that Jesus indeed, uh, when he died on the cross, he, he tore down legalism and the walls of division between the Jewish and Gentile people. When Jesus died on the cross, Paul died on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, friend, if you're a confessing follower of Christ, you died on the cross. Jesus died in our place. He died for our sin. And we're made alive through him. When Jesus was raised from the dead, so was Paul, and so were you, and so was I. And so Paul here arguing this thing out is saying, listen, if If Jesus died for these things, if I died to these things, why would I ever bring the burden of the law back on me? Why would I build up what was torn down? If I do that, well, then I indeed am a transgressor. I'm a sinner. F.F. Bruce said it this way, Anyone who, having received justification through faith in Christ, therefore reinstates law in the place of Christ, He makes himself a sinner all over again. See, see, to rebuild the law is to transgress against it. We we can't keep the law. God gave us the law for a purpose. In Exodus, we see how God gives the law to to teach the people how to live in the promised land. He gives the law to constrain wickedness. He gives the law to show them they're sinners. (laughs) We talked about this last Lord's Day. Maybe you thought about that this week as you were driving, that whole illustration of not knowing you were speeding until you saw the speed limit sign. (laughs) Then that sign reminds you, I'm wrong here. I'm doing the wrong thing. I'm breaking the law. That's what the Scripture, the law does for us. It helps us to see we're, we're, we're far worse than we think we are. And so that law was never intended then to save us. It was intended to show us our need for a Savior. That there'd be one who would be perfect, who would fulfill the law, who would die in our place. But what legalism does is it convinces us that somehow we can externally conform enough, we can make ourselves better people, and yet what it truly does is it condemns us. Because the standard of legalism is perfection. And we are constantly reminded that we are not perfect. And so again, the question from the text is, are you trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation today? And if you are, friend, then there's no room for works in that equation of salvation. Works don't play any part in saving us, and yet true saving faith should produce works. See, the the pushback to justification by faith in Christ alone is this. When Martin Luther, during the Reformation, proposed that this so strongly, this was a cornerstone of the Reformation, there were many in the Catholic Church who pushed back against Luther and against others and basically said, so what you're saying is, what we might say today, once saved, always saved, doesn't matter how you live. <laughs> well, what you're saying is just, just, just become a Christian and then live however you want. And so what the Catholic Church that was teaching is, no, you need the gospel, you need faith in Christ, but you also need works of charity and love, and the list goes on. You need to do these things along with these things, and then you're saved. And when Luther and others said, no, we're saved by faith in Christ alone. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying, it is finished. He wasn't saying, it's finished as long as you do this and this and this. But, but that pushback, there's a validity to it because there are many in our culture today who will say, well, I'm fine, I'm okay because I prayed the sinner's prayer. But because I walked the aisle and I was baptized in such and such church, there are many who will hold on to membership in a church they never go to 
A church maybe they were baptized in 40 years ago, and they'll hold on to that and they'll say, oh, but I'm a Christian. Even if there's nothing in their life, no fruit at all of their faith. Friends, that is not justification by faith in Christ alone. That is false assurance. That that is an unbelieving person. That that is someone who is brought into a, bought into a religious system, but they haven't really responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, it is all over the place. And there are aspects of it, elements of it that are all over the place. So for example... One of the ways I think so many of us in the church struggle with this today, and I've, I've shared this example before, this picture, is, is we sin. So just, let's see if we're on the same page. How many people in this room have ever sinned? Okay, I think we're 100% there. If you didn't raise your hand, then you just sinned. So, but, so, so we sin, and, and I'm not going to ask for testimony here because I'm afraid of what some might say, but, but when you sin, <laughs> at some point you should feel guilty. <laughs> that there's this guilt that comes. Most of us in our sin don't sin and go, man, I can't, I can't wait to just go deeper and deeper and farther away and farther away. There's this, there's this guilt and this conviction we feel. But here's what we normally do. We sin, we feel guilty, and so then what do we do? We vow to try harder. I mean, have you ever said or heard someone say, well, I'll never do that again. That this is the last time. I promise I'm going to change. But friend, what so often happens is we sin, we feel guilty, we vow to try harder, and we might do good for a little while, but then we sin again. And we sin and we feel guilty, and we vow to try harder, and we sin again, and we sin, and we feel guilty, and we vow to try harder, and we sin again. And after a while, we just get tired of vowing to try harder. It, it is a roller coaster ride so many are on. I, I don't know how many of you like actual physical roller coasters. Whatever mentally makes me think that they're a good idea quickly fades when I actually get onto one, and my body says, I, I was not built for a roller coaster. Let's leave it there. And so we've gone on vacation the last couple of years where there were roller coasters, and, and I think it was, it was because of the heat in Orlando and maybe dehydration that I just thought, oh, this would be a good idea. And as soon as I got on it and it started to move, I realized it was a terrible idea. And guess what roller coasters don't have? Exit ramps. <laughs> You're locked in, you know? That you think it's for safety, but it's so you can't go anywhere. You, you can't get off. And you're on it. And it's up and down and up and down and up and down. And, and friends, that is what the Christian life is like for so many people. It's up and down and up and down and up and down. And after a while, they just want to get off that thing and not get back on it. Because after a while, the vowing to try harder and vowing to try harder and vowing to try harder, it wears you out and it wears everybody else out. And friends, here's the reason, because that's not gospel. That's legalism. Legalism convinces you that somehow you're going to change yourself. You're going to vow, and you're going to commit, and you're going to become this radically different person. But the only way for that to happen in response to the gospel is for us to be changed from the inside out. And that's what Paul is saying here. That, that, that our faith, it saves us. We're saved by faith alone. But that faith then should, should produce fruit in our lives. And again, going back to, to Luther, he said, we're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. That there should be fruit of it. Which is the next point there in your outline. Point two, justification by faith then leads to repentance that bears fruit. Paul says, for though... For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He's saying that when Jesus died on the cross, he, he fulfilled the law. Therefore, through Christ, I've died to it. And now I can live in God. I've been given life through God. I've been resurrected with Christ. And he says in verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I love how personal Paul is here. When we talk about the gospel sometimes in very general, vague, just the world terms. Christ died for you, plural, for us, for we. But notice Paul here says, Christ died for me. Friends, you can put your name in that verse. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved Richard Carwile and gave himself for Richard Carwile. And if you're a follower of Christ, your name's there too, friend. Paul says, He loved me and gave himself for me. I love what we sang earlier this morning, today. Come thou fount. Jesus sought me, me, when a stranger. Wandering from the fold of God, he rescued me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you. It is personal. And Paul is helping us to see this as he's talking about how, how the gospel now has radically changed him. See, sinning, feeling guilty, vowing to try harder, that doesn't bring this kind of change. That this change happens from the inside out. See, legalism says, no, we conform externally. If you follow these rules and this list, if you just try harder, if you work at it really hard, if you just kind of just roll up your sleeves and just really just, just work it out, then you're going to eventually see victory here. Friends, it doesn't work that way. And if it did work that way, then what Paul's saying here is Jesus died for no reason. <laughs> Friends, if you could fix yourself, you have no need for a Savior to fix you. If you can make yourself righteous, you have no need for a Messiah to make you righteous. And we can only be made right with God through an internal change, a, a heart change. External conformity does not produce long-term fruit. And what it ends up producing is pride and arrogance. That's exactly what Jesus confronts in the Pharisees. You remember what he calls them? <laughs> Whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, Jesus says, but on the inside there's a, there's a rotten corpse. John the Baptist, the Pharisees come there to the river. He's baptizing. What does he say? He says they're a brood of vipers. They're venomous snakes. They're children of the enemy. And what's he tell them to do? Go bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. See, authentic repentance should bear fruit. And the reason, friend that there are people in your life who are tired of hearing you say you're sorry over and over again and you're going to change over and over again, is because you're not really sorry and you're not going to change. Because you can't change yourself. But you need the power of Christ in your life who then will change you from the inside out. That's what justification by faith does. God changes us from the inside out. He gives us a new heart, new desires, a new way to life, new behaviors, and then that becomes fruit in our lives. It's not immediate. <laughs> It takes time. This is what we call sanctification. It is a growing process from the day we come to faith in Christ to the day that we go home to be with Christ. We are a work in progress. Oh, how I thank the Lord that I did not find my way to a pulpit my first couple years as a Christian. <laughs> I would be dreadfully unemployed, for one. I would be probably labeled as a heretic. Knowing that newfound faith, I, I had to grow, I had to learn, I had to... To, to, to be changed from the inside out. And yet so many of us hold on to this notion, no, we've got, to, we've got to clean ourselves up in order to get right with God. I've heard person after person say to me something along these lines. Pastor, I just, I, I, can't, I can't come to church till I get some things straightened out in my life. <laughs> I mean, you mean like your car doesn't work and you can't get to church? or what do you, you, know, you know what they're saying. I, I, can't, I can't become a Christian until I, until I work out a few things here. I heard a pastor say long ago, friend, God doesn't clean his fish before he catches them. <laughs> but there's a work that only Christ can do, and he does it from the inside 
out, and it comes through trusting in Jesus, not trying harder to fix ourselves. And, and so here's the question. Is there authentic fruit of repentance in your life today? When is the last time, or, or can, you, can you remember right now the last time you went to a person and said, I am sorry, I was wrong, will, will you please forgive me? Do you, do you acknowledge that you're wrong? <laughs> or are you arrogant and boastful and prideful? That, that's not fruit of repentance. That's fruit of legalism. That's fruit of trying to conform yourself. Because when you try to change yourself from the outside in, you start to think you're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> Ask around. You're not, but you think you are. But the gospel changes us from the inside out. And then listen to what it does. We're, we're going to eventually get to Galatians 5. And this is what Paul writes there. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is this. The fruit of repentance is this. Love. Are you a more loving person today than when you became, before you became a follower of Jesus? Joy. Are you growing in joy in your Christian life? Peace. Are you more at peace today than you were before you trusted in Jesus? Patience. Has God done this miraculous work in your heart where you used to be an impatient old cuss? <laughs> and now you've just become this more patient person through the work of the Spirit. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul writes that those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and its desires. So these should be fruit in our life. And when they are not, when they are lacking, that's for a couple of reasons. One is, you may be a very young Christian. As I mentioned before, I'm thankful I didn't preach my first few years I was a believer. I was a young believer. There was a lot for God to work on. God's still working on a lot in my life. It is a process of sanctification. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3 about infants in Christ. So sometimes our our malice, our, our slander, he writes about in 1 Corinthians 3, that's a result that we're just so young in the faith that, that, that we, we, we don't know yet. People haven't taught us yet. That work's not been fully done yet in our heart. That could be the case. But it could be something else. I'll go through this list with people and I'll hear people say things like, well, you know, Pastor, I'm just, I'm not a very good Christian. <laughs> As if we have sides, you know, good Christian, bad Christian. I'm kind of a struggling pastor. I mean, I've always struggled with this. I, I struggled with this before I became a Christian, and I keep struggling with it today. I'm just always going to struggle with this. Maybe it's not that you're a poor Christian or a struggling Christian. Maybe it's that you're not actually a Christian. And maybe it's that you were able to externally conform to some of the fruit of the Spirit. You know, you, you can, you know we learn in the, the Christian world how to fake joy and what to say. You know? I mean, how many of you came into church this morning and said to or someone said something along, how was your week? Oh, my week was great. How was your week? Oh, my week was great. Did everybody have a great week? My week kind of stunk, honestly. <laughs> and I'm guessing some of you, you didn't have a very good week. But, but we have externally conformed ourselves into this, well, I'm good, I'm good, you're good, all, we're all good, it's all, everything's good. No, it's not. But, but we, we, can, we can fake it. We can pretend, or at least we can really pressure ourselves in areas to, to really push ourselves towards certain areas growing. But overall, there's going to be something in the fruit of the Spirit that's entirely lacking from our life. And a lot of times the reason for that is because there's been no heart change. We've just learned new behaviors. And what we need is a clear call to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we might say, like Paul says here, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Notice what Paul doesn't say there. Paul doesn't say, well, I'm living for Jesus now. <laughs> Paul says, I'm dead and Christ is alive and you should see Christ in me. Friend, the world should see Jesus through you and in you.
doesn't mean you should be perfect because you won't be this side of eternity. But something should look different. And if it doesn't look different, it may be that there is no Jesus to see in you. That there is no Jesus to see through you because you've yet to repent and truly trust in him. Which brings us to this last question in preparation to come to the table together. Point three. Are you trusting in God's grace? Or are you trusting in your works for salvation and sanctification? Salvation is that saving work that God does through the gospel of Jesus Christ where he takes us in our sinful condition and he makes us new and he declares us righteous through Christ and Christ alone. And that's salvation. Sanctification then is that growth in our life from the day that we trust Christ to the day that Jesus takes us home or returns for us where we're becoming more and more and more and more like Jesus in our everyday life. Are you trusting in God's grace to do that work? Or are you just bowing and trying harder to do that work? Paul makes it very clear here in verse 21 that if we are trusting in any way in our works for salvation, for sanctification, then Jesus died for no purpose. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, Paul writes. He says then that the cross was unnecessary, that the gospel was in vain, or that that the gospel was insufficient. Again, that when Jesus said, it is finished, that there was a footnote. (laughs) It is finished, plus if you do some acts of charity, then it's really finished. That's not gospel. Philip Ryken says it this way, either salvation comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ or it comes through human effort, but not both. If we can be saved by our works, then Jesus was a false Messiah who died a worthless death on a meaningless cross. But friends, he was no false Messiah. His death was fully meaningful and sufficient for your sin and for mine. Are, are you tired of the roller coaster? Are you tired of vowing to try harder? Then the call from the gospel of Jesus Christ today is repent and trust in Him. There is an exit ramp. (laughs) You can get off this religious train, this up and down experience, and you can trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And friend, He will change you. It is a long road. It is a narrow road. But friends, it is the only way to eternal life. And we're reminded of that every time we come to the Lord's table together. Again, the controversy here in Galatia that Paul addresses and talks about in Antioch there, was it was a table, it was a meal. And of all things, Jesus had taught clearly that this is an opportunity to fellowship and come together and be one in Christ, and yet you're allowing it to be divisive. <laughs> Well, we see that consistently through the Scripture. We, we have a way of messing up everything, it seems. And that's why we need to keep coming back to this table. Jesus died so we could have this meal. And he made this possible. And again, we've talked about this before. You're, you're going to get a, a half thimble of juice and a little piece of cracker. You're not going to get full on this. <laughs> that's intentional. It should leave you wanting more. Because guess what? When you leave here today and you go wherever you're going to go to eat lunch and you just fill up and fill up and fill up, you're going to be full momentarily, but I guarantee every one of you is going to eat another meal. I will. (laughs) Think about that. We eat and we say things like what? Well, I'll never eat again. (laughs) Wrong. Perhaps there's a reason that God has put hunger and thirst in our life. Perhaps God has put it there that we might hunger and thirst for something more than bread and a cup and that we might thirst for a day when we will eat at the table of our Lord where we will never hunger and thirst again where there will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more suffering where Christ will say definitively and finally it is all made new. We experience the hunger and the thirst that comes from this to be reminded there's a day we will hunger and thirst no more if we are in Christ. But friend, hear me. If you're not in Christ today, if you're not trusting in Jesus today, 
then your eternity will be filled with hunger and thirst, and it will never be quenched. And the call from Scripture is clear to you today. Repent and trust in Christ. And we are reminded when we come to the table that this may be the last time we get to take the Lord's Supper this side of eternity. Do you understand that? Jesus says that that every time we take this, we're to proclaim His death until He comes. He's either going to take you home or He's going to return for all of us. And it's going to happen, and it's going to happen quick. Are you ready for that today? Now, not tomorrow. (laughs) Not next week, not next year. Are you ready for that today? Are you ready for this to be your last meal this side of eternity? Those are questions that we're called to ask as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. And so I want to invite the deacons to come forward. As we prepare, again, the invitation is open if you're a confessing follower of Christ. We invite you to partake in the Lord's Supper with us today. This is our time of response. We're responding to the Word through our faith in Jesus. This reminds us of the Gospel and our need to have our faith in Jesus. If you're not a confessing follower of Christ, we invite you to observe. We'll begin by taking the bread. The bread that Jesus and the disciples had was part of a a Passover celebration. And if you remember from our study of Exodus, that Passover meal always involved unleavened bread. Because even after hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, when it was time for God to deliver His people, He did it swiftly, and there wasn't time for the bread to rise. And so every time the Jewish people took this bread, this unleavened bread, they were reminded when God delivers, He does so quickly and He does so swiftly. And when Jesus offers this bread to the disciples, He says there's a day coming when I will come quickly and swiftly. (laughs) Well, I will finally deliver my people out of their slavery. Well, I will take them to the true land of promise. Friends, are you ready for that day? Is there anything in your life right now? Is there sin there that's just, you're holding on to it? This is the time to repent and to trust in Christ. The Lord's Supper, again, is not for perfect people. It is for people trusting in a perfect Savior. Are you trusting in Christ today? This is a time to reflect on that. And so the deacons are going to distribute the bread. If you'll hold on to this, I'm going to read Scripture and pray for us. And then we're going to receive it together. As you wait and as we sing, this is a wonderful time to go before the Lord and confess and repent and trust in Him.
1 Corinthians 11, we find Paul sharing about the Lord's Supper. He says this, For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for this bread. We thank you for this reminder through this unleavened bread that just as you delivered your people swiftly and quickly out of Egypt, you will deliver us as well. That there may be some in here, Father, who are longing for deliverance. They are, they are worn out and they are tired and they have suffered. Lord, would you remind us now as we receive this that the day is coming and is coming soon when you will return for us or you will take us home and we will be in glory forever. Help us to look to that day and long for it in Jesus' name as we receive this. Amen. We read as well that at that last meal Jesus would have this side of eternity with the disciples, that last Passover celebration, he took the cup. And he said this cup would serve as a reminder of the new covenant. And they were no longer under the old covenant, these works of the law, but the new covenant made possible through his blood, the cleansing work of the blood of Jesus. We're reminded every time we take this cup that there is no sin so great that Christ's blood did not cover it on the cross. And so as we prepare to receive this cup together, Again, the deacons will distribute this if you'll hold on to it until I pray and read Scripture and then we'll receive it together as we prepare for that again. It's a wonderful time to sing, to repent, to confess, to go before the Lord, to stop trying so hard and just to trust in Him today.
Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 11 to say this. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for this cup and for this reminder that Christ indeed is coming, that his death is sufficient, that his blood covers all our sin. And so we receive it now joyfully, and as we receive it, longing for that day of his return. Thank you. Amen. Church, if you would stand together as our deacons return to their seats, I want to Read one more passage before we sing one more time. As we think about that call in Scripture to proclaim the Lord's death until He returns, this reminder from the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 22. John writes this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.